So we're continuing with our study of Esther, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. Last time, we, we left Esther as a queen of uh, Medo-Persian Empire, just installed, and just having had her inauguration, uh, that's not the right word, but uh, um, coronation, that's the word I was looking for. And there were about four years that went between chapters 1 and 2. Uh, Ahasuerus, uh, in between, had attempted to conquer Greek and had another failure. Uh, he comes home, he thinks of Vashti, her act and banishment. He was obviously lonely. The king's attendants were quick to see this. And they had this wonderful idea. Let's gather the most beautiful virgin women of the kingdom, and then you can pick one to be your queen. The king seemed to like that idea. And we see Esther that was raised as a daughter of her older cousin because she was orphaned. His name was Mordecai, and Esther was very beautiful. So she's caught up in this, and she's taken to the palace. Esther and Mordecai are Jews. They're of the tribe of Benjamin, and they're there as a result of the captivity that started clear back in their Nebuchadnezzar with their, uh, with their ancestors. So Esther's taken for beauty treatment along with the other young women. This beauty treatment lasts a year. And uh, she becomes the favorite of the eunuch in charge of these women. And so he gives her special privileges, special quarters, special servants. And she has her time with the king and is selected by the king to be the queen. And he hosts for her a royal banquet that is um, her uh, coronation time. And uh, so she is installed as the queen in place of Vashti. And then we turn to her cousin Mordecai, and he sits in the king's gate. This tells us he's some sort of an official at the palace there in Susa. And he hears in, while he's there, we don't know how, but somehow, he becomes aware of a plot to assassinate King Hasuerus. And so he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king on his behalf. It's clear he gets credit for it. They investigate what he has brought as, as the um, accusation or the information, and they find out, oh, it's valid. And so these two... Um, perpetrators intend want, want to be in perpetrators they didn't get a chance to perpetrate it are hung and the account of all this is written down in the king's chronicles in his presence it was important to the king that this would be recorded and so now God has set the stage at a fairly uh, le level of small detail as well as large detail uh, for the events that are now to follow now, before we get into the book of Esther, we've got to do some history study because there's some connections that we simply have to make if we're going to really understand this conflict in the book of Esther. And we're going to go clear back to begin with to the book of Exodus. So go back to Exodus chapter 17, uh, page uh, 119 if you have a New American Standard the John MacArthur Study Bible, and if that helps you at all. But we're going we're to start out there in Exodus chapter 17, 
I'll get there one of these days. And we're, I, I, want to, I want to set the background for this before we read it. Moses and the Jews have left Egypt after the plagues and all that. We're at the point where they've been through the Red Sea. It was parted. They crossed on dry ground. Pharaoh and his armies are chasing. And as they're chasing, the Jews all get through. Um, and then God closes back up the Red Sea and drowns the armies of Pharaoh. And so, so that has occurred. Now, we've not yet been to Mount Sinai. So we haven't had that great encounter between God and Moses and the golden calf and all of that. God has at this point provided manna, meat, and water in miraculous ways throughout their journey. We're about 1,000 years before the book of Esther. Okay, real approximate, but about 1,000 years. So let's go to Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. If we could get somebody to read those for us. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered it, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one, on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Moses said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utter, utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called, it, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I could have told you before we started reading that, Amalek is the grandson in that lineage of Esau. So here are the Jews coming against generations ago. I mean, there are people now, but they take the name of Amalek, and so they are descendants of Esau. And so it's relatives against relatives. I mean, if you look at this, this is a pretty close relationship. Close in the sense of lineage, not close in the sense of emotionally. Uh, because Esau uh, was, of course, the one that was first born with regard to Jacob. And we studied all of that when we were looking at Genesis. But so here's this twin brother rivalry back. And it le is leading to war between the descendants of the two bro twin brothers. And so as Amalek and the people come down, Moses uh, through, picks Joshua and says, pick men to go to the battle. And they fight. And here's Moses up on the hill watching the battle. And when he's holding his arms up, then they're winning. And clearly that is the work of God giving them the strength and, and the ability to fight that battle. But if you've ever held your arms out for a long time, 
they get tired. Yeah. Doesn't take as long as you think it would. And uh, so Moses needs some help. So they set him on a rock, and they, he has helpers, holds up his arms, and Joshua wins decisively. Now that's the story behind it. Here's the part we are specifically interested in as far as this history concerned. God tells Moses, write this down in a book. I'm going to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. They're going away. And, Mo, and he was also to say that the Lord has sworn that he will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, that would not be a pleasant heritage to have, would it? Somebody that God has said, I'm going to continue in my war against them from generation to generation. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, what do you tell your grandkids? It's going to be tough. God's against us. What can I say? Now, I don't think they were looking at it that way, and I don't even know if they knew about it. But we've got to take another step forward in time now. Let's go over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, you'll find that on page 392 if you're looking at a New American Standard from John MacArthur's Study Bible. Uh, 392 if you wanted that, but it's 1 Samuel 15. And I went past it. And I, I'm, we're going to actually read the whole chapter, and I, I'm just going to read it and explain it as I go. I think that's going to work the best. And right now, we are about 550 years before the book of Esther, okay? And so let me, let me just, I'll just start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king? Oops, sorry. One chapter too many. Back up, try again. Samuel said to Saul, so who is Saul? He's the first king of Israel. What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. Same as Mordecai, right? But Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him in the way while he was coming up from Egypt. God has a memory. It's lasted 450 years at this point. Remember, 450 years ago was this battle. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, put, put, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Judgment of God, pretty severe. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword so of the ones he found he destroyed all but one and the one he kept alive was agag but saul and the people spared agag and the best of the sheep the oxen the fatlings the lambs and all that was good but were not willing to destroy them utterly 
but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Now, we could go a whole morning on this chapter, but I'm going to make a few minor points. We're mostly interested in the history, but think about this for a minute. Here is Saul. What was Saul sent to do? Kill them all. Who sent him? And why did he send him against the Amalekites? His decree from 400 years ago. He was bringing judgment on them because they had opposed him as he brought his, his Jewish people up out of Egypt. And Saul was given clear instruction. If you were sent out by the God Most High with a task to do that was this judgmental, would you even give yourself a moment of thought to not follow those instructions to the letter? If God would do this against the Amalekites, what would he do against you? Saul's not that savvy. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Did God mention the issue of bringing back the spoils or this king? No, it's about obedience. But, and Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So Samuel was not real comfortable with the situation either. Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, a monument for yourself for disobeying God, uh, and turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Okay, now let's add a little bit of deception to the list. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They, blame shift, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel minced few words in telling Saul, No, you did not do what God told you. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and it brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. He's a little more specific now, isn't he, on his blame shift? Sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to the sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now let me tell you something. If a true prophet of God, which I don't know of any that exist today, okay? Matter of fact, all the people that claim to be prophets today have pretty well proved they're not, all right? But when you, if, if Samuel came to you and said, let me tell you what the Lord said. He said you were disobedient. I would not say, oh, yes, I was. I just don't think there's any profit in that. 
But Saul's still trying to think he can talk his way out of this or something. He's still trying to talk his way out of this, out of it. He's blaming the people. And then he brings up another offense that Samuel hasn't even mentioned yet. Oh, I, oh by the way, I also kept Agag alive, the king of the Amalekites. Samuel said in verse 22, Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Has as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of the rams. For the rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's a pretty dark sin in the eyes of God in the Old Testament in particular. And insubordination is iniquity and idolatry. There, we're laying a future feet, Saul. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Okay, now he's willing to admit it. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. We're going to fix all this by going to worship. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And, of course, we know all that's going to come with David and all that downstream. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, Saul speaking again, but please honor me now before the elder of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Agag, why is he cheerful? He's alive and... He thinks all this destruction is over. As your sword has made women childless, so shall the, your mother be childless among men. Now that's Samuel talking. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Isn't this a fun story? <clears throat> but it's history and we need to know it. So here is Agag that was hacked to pieces. Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at, at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, hold that history in mind, and let's go over and look at Esther chapter 3. And if someone would read us verses 1 through 6, I would appreciate it. Your turn again. Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedia, the Agalite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate, knelt down and paid honor to Haman. 
for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down nor pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? The day after, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. All right. So, here we see in verse 1, we, we get to meet Haman. And it starts out with after these events. Now, I could wait till verse 7 to tell you that we are now in the 12th year of Ahasuerus or Xerxes' reign. When was Esther made queen? Do you remember? The fourth year. The, the fourth year. Did I have that right? Um, I think I had something down. He, I think it was in the, at the end of the fifth year. But so we've had approximately seven years go by between chapter two and three. Okay? And so some time has gone by. More events have occurred. Um, and uh, as these events occurred, Haman has risen up in Mordecai's or in Ahasuerus's uh, world, and in the twelfth year, then he promotes him um, to have authority over all the princes who were with him. And this is somewhat like maybe prime minister. I mean, he becomes number two in the land under Ahasuerus. <clears throat> Why and everything we don't know. <clears throat> but now we get some introduction to Haman here. He's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Who's he descended of? Agag. Agag. It was his, he is of the clan that came out of the family of Agag. And so here he is out of that family of Agag, who 550 years earlier, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, who a thousand years earlier, God had helped the Israelites defeat and had announced, I'm going to be at war with the Amalekites throughout history. It's going to be a never-ending war. 550 years ago, God exercises judgment on them and sent Saul down to wipe him out for all practical purposes. Well, obviously, one of his relatives wasn't home at the time or something, but here we have a descendant of Agag. And that's what they're known by, descendants of Agag, which is interesting. We have the king, who doesn't know it yet, but he's picked a queen, who is a Jew, descendant of one of the twin brothers, and uh, Jacob, and has made a man prime minister, 
who is a descendant of the other twin brother, Esau. And God is against the Amalekites. And God has a good memory. And God is sovereign. And he doesn't change his mind. And so on and so on and so on. And so here is this man who's made important to the point of being second only to the king for, as a descendant of Agag. And so we see then in verse 2 that everybody at the king's gate, all the king's servants would bow down to him, would pay respect to him. New American Standard says pay homage to him as he passed by. And why did they do that? ordered by the king but there was one that wouldn't and that was Mordecai he wouldn't do that so in verse 3 the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai why are you transgressing the king's command why aren't you doing what you've been told to do now this reads to me so much like um, you could say politics but you could also say the workplace We've got one guy down here who's not doing what he's told. And what are we going to do about it? I mean, that becomes an issue. And, and, and to some extent, legitimately. Because as a group, we don't want to attract attention that one of our ranks is not doing what they're told to do. Um, so it continues to fester and escalate just a little bit here. Um, so they asked him, and he wouldn't listen to them. In other words, he didn't. He didn't interact with them. We will find out in a few minutes he'd given them one piece of information. So they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. You see what's going on here? here so they tell on him. And why did they tell on him? Well, they want to see, you know, is this going to work? Are there reasons why? Are there things that we can look to that will excuse us from having to do everything we're told to do. But they want to see if this is going to work, see what's going to happen. In many people that work in a business environment, not all, certainly maybe not the majority, but there's a group of people that um, really like conflict that involves others. Because if somebody else is in a conflict, that's using up people's time and energy, and so you won't be in the limelight. They're going, it's their conflict. And, but anyway, so uh, he had told them he was a Jew, meaning a descendant of Jacob, right? And so they were curious about whether that would be good enough as an excuse that Mordecai could ignore Haman in his new position and not bow down to him, not show homage to him. And so Haman checks it out. Verse 5, Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him. What was Haman's biggest first response that's listed? Oh boy, he's upset. Here's this guy not willing to give me my due as an important person. This is just not acceptable. We ought to talk for a minute about, so why was Haman not bowing down I'm sorry, why was Mordecai not bowing down to Haman? He was a Jew. Okay. But that might lead us to more than one possible reason why he would not bow down. 
Well, you've got the historical reason. Apparently, it's well known that this is a descendant of Agag, right? Agag does not have a prominent place in Jewish history. As a matter of fact, Agag was a descendant of the Amalekites who came out to do war with the Jews and to stop them. So there is historically uh, tension to the point of a blood feud, not so much with the Israelites, but with God himself. God said, go down and wipe them out. I'm done with them. And so they weren't ever friendly races. You, you could call this, if you want, racial based on the difference between being a descendant of Jacob and, be, Jacob and being a descendant of Esau. Um, I mean, the other reason is Haman might be, I'm sorry, Mordecai might be exercising, um, I'm, you know, don't bow down to any person or graven image, you know, don't have any gods before me. We don't get anything in the text that tells us much about the Jewish expression, their, their, their response to worship of God about um, either Mordecai or Esther for that matter. Now clearly we see it in the background. This is one of those times where we have to be wise enough to see they were devout in the sense of they were certainly God-fearing, God-believing, um, and, and we see evidence of that. We'll see more of it when this death threat that comes out of today's chapter is becoming real. The response is a prayerful response, even though they don't call it prayer. But um, so this is what's going on, and, and what is it? Do you suppose that Agag is aware of his family history with regard to the Jews? I would say so. If you're, if you're walking around and in terms of your ethnic identity, oh, I hate to use those words, but real identity, not what you imagined it to be. Can I say it that way? You're an Agag. Well, that clearly, you know, they're identifying themselves with Agag, who was once king of the Amalekites. And so when... He finds out the reason Mordecai won't bow down is because Mordecai's a Jew. And so all of that bubbles up. And so he decides he's going to have to do something about it, but he's not content just to deal with Haman, is he? What does he decide he's going to do? We see it there in verse 6. He disdained or was unwilling to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That's not enough. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He's going to be tit for tat. Looking back 550 years ago, they tried to wipe us out. This is my chance to wipe out all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, not every Jew is in his kingdom, but a lot of them are. And so Mordecai, or Haman, boy, I can't keep from backing those two around. Haman can't keep from, I've got to get rid of all of them. They, they've got to go. And so that's what's in Haman's heart, got to get rid of all the Jews. With that said, let's look at verses 7 through 11. Who will volunteer for that one? In the first
first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took the took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagai, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also to do with them as you see, as it seems good to you. Okay. So when we look at verse 7, we get an idea of some time going on here. In the first month, which is a month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Hasarer. So month one of the twelfth year of his reign, that's where I said we get the twelve years had gone by. Uh, five years since the, we last came to Esther. And Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So we're looking at a year period. Okay? And what's going on during that year? It says, the lot was cast in front of Haman. And that doesn't mean much to us today. It's easiest to say the lot was something similar to what we would call a dice. You roll the dice, see what number comes up. But it was so much more than that in the way that it was used. And the first place I want to go to look at how that was used a little bit is to get the general picture in Proverbs 16, verse 33. So if you want to turn over there, we'll get somebody to read that for us. Proverbs 16, verse 33. So these, the lot, and we see it throughout the Bible, what did they do to determine who got Jesus' garments at the cross? They cast lots. Okay, and I'm going to, and if you want to, you can turn back to Leviticus 16. This is the first mention of the lot in the Bible. Um, but not all, but so the Jews were used to using this as a part of decision making. And... The book of Proverbs tells us that God controls that. And the last thing I want to tell you is that God's in control of the number that comes up on the dice. I'm not going to tell you he's not. He might, for your own good, give you a tremendous losing streak if you're trying to make money off of the dice. I, I don't know how to deal with that. I mean, it's a prov we have a sovereign God, but I'm going to tell you that I don't think God's going to be honoring you if you're gambling with dice. This isn't gambling. This is a different kind of process. Somebody have Proverbs 6, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16, 5 through 10. Who can read that for us, please? And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. 
Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azrael. Azizel. Okay. So this is the first mention we have of it where God is directing them in their annual sacrifice for sin to determine which of the goat is going to be covered with the sin of the people and then they would use the lot to determine which one it is of the two and you see the lot being cast as something that God turns the people to multiple times when they divided up the land when they get to the promised land they did it through lots and so there was acceptable and expected and we see it even reinforced in what we read in Proverbs that this lot God would put his hand into the decision making by controlling the outcome of the lots. And so we see in verse 7 that Israel wasn't the only nation to do this. Other nations used it as well. And that's what they're talking about. There for that year-long period in verse 7 where the lot was constantly cast in front of Haman. He's a the chief decision maker under Ahasuerus, so he's going to be involved in those decisions and those lots will be cast in his presence. Questions, comments? Okay, so we have a year goes by in verse seven. He's been angered at Mordecai during that time. In his heart, he wants to destroy the Jews. And so, after that year goes by, there in verse 8, he goes to Harasareris, and he says, by the way, you've got some people here, they're scattered all over the province, and their laws are different than our laws, and they don't observe the king's laws. So he's real quickly making this personal with regard to Harasareris. They don't follow your rules. And we've got one example, at least, where he's absolutely right. They consider that they have their own laws that are different than that. And so Haman is very quickly establishing it's not in the king's interest to allow them to remain, to be endured. The word actually means placed. And so what did Haman just say to the king? This is not good. This isn't good and it's against you personally. They don't pay attention to your laws. And so it's not in your best interest to allow them to continue. But I've got a solution, says Haman. If it please the king, decree that they are to be destroyed. And I, Haman, will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the ones who control the king's money and do the king's things, in other words, to the treasury, as a result. Well, where's he going to get this silver? He's going to take it from the Jews that they kill. And he says 10,000 talents. The exact amount isn't known. Uh, because what's a talent changes a little bit here and there. And historically we're not sure. But it's probably in the region of 375 tons. 
This is not a small amount of silver. As a matter of fact, if that's accurate, from the best we can understand things, that would be about 70% of the amount that the king would expect for an annual year's revenue. So he's offering to give him well over a 50% bonus to the revenue that year if we do away with these Jews. And so he's made it personal, but now he's also addressing one of the king's problems at this point in that he's attempted two wars with the Greeks, failed both times. As a matter of fact, years later, Alexander the Greek is going to come up and wipe them out or take their power away, is a better way of saying it. And, but he spent a lot of money on unsuccessful wars. And wars cost money, don't they? And so he, he really could benefit in terms of running the country and his own personal wealth with some of this plunder. So Haman's held up two carrots. One he created. These people are against you. I mean, they didn't investigate it. He just took Haman's word for it. But the second one is that, oh, by the way, we can fill your treasury back up so you can do better. By the way, this gives us a hint at something that the Jews as a people had been reasonably prosperous and had been a part of the culture doing business and all those kinds of things. So, so uh, he's looking to the Jews as a payday for the king. Uh, in verse 10, the king took the signet ring and gave it to Haman and said, the silver's yours, do what you want to with it, and do with the people as you please. What just happened here when he gave him the ring? He gave him a rubber stamp that he can put on anything he wants to. He can say anything, make any rule, any act. He can just do that. And so the king gave it to him. Now he said, the silver is yours, do as you please. Did he mean, okay, well, you don't have to give me the silver. You can just keep it if you want. Do you think that's going to fly? No. Now do it the silver as you please. When what you told me you pleased to do was give it to the treasury. And he's going to expect that. So now let's look at verses 12 through 15. And I'd appreciate a, a volunteer reader there. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Hammond commanded, was written to, to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people and to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king, Asarasus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree to, in every province oops, by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued to, in Susa the citadel, and the king and, ha and Hammond sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
So let's, let's back up in verse 12 and start with this. What month did Haman have his conference with the king? The first month. And so then, uh, shortly thereafter, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. So they're bringing them together on that, on that first month. And Haman has these scribes write out in every language that uh, pertained to the kingdom. Um, and he did this. Uh, th this was written to the satraps, the governors, and the princes, in other words, all the important people that managed the kingdom. And according to the script, each people, according to its language, was written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with the king's ring. So he's under the authority of the king sending this out. And they sent couriers out. We talked about that before. They did something a lot like our Pony Express in the early days of mail across the, across the continent. And what are they to do? They are to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. Sound like what, what we saw that uh, Saul was sent to do in one day. So there's a day selected. We're going to round them all up, and on that day, they're all going to die. It's the 13th day of the 12th month. So he gave them about a year to get ready to carry out this assassination or annihilation uh, if you, and, and probably uh, we could call it genocide, certainly, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. of, of all of the, the Jews in, in the kingdom. And they also are to seize their possessions as plunder. And verse 14 has some important words in it. A copy of this edict is to be issued as law in every province and published to all the peoples so they should be ready. When it's a law... Remember how the law of the Medes and Persians work? What just happened here? It's irrevocable. This isn't going to change. This is where it's going to go. And so this is uh, similar to but different than God's order to Saul. How is it different to God's order to Saul? What was Saul supposed to do? Not just the people, but yeah. destroy all their livestock and their, and and we don't know about hard possessions like gold and silver, but certainly all the animals and everything were to die. And uh, the couriers went out impelled by the king's demand. So there, this is the order of the king. This is a big deal. And the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And. What did the king and Haman do as this decree is going out? Sat down and got drunk. Sat down to drink. <laughs> At least maybe start on their way to drunkenness if that's where they were headed. Uh, it was, this, was, this is a moment of celebration for them. They're relaxed. They see no issue. They think it's a good thing. The king's going to fill his coffers back up. And unbeknownst to the king... Haman's going to get his revenge against Mordecai and all of his relatives, and maybe some avenging of what happened to his ancestor Agag, all in one fell swoop on one day out there 12 months from now about. And so they've got this plan, and they're both very happy with it, 
And clearly, you know, we could have thought, well, maybe Haman got carried away and went a little far with his authority with the king's signet ring, but no, the king's just as content and happy to sit down and have a drink over it as Haman is. But there's one more thing that says right here, and the city of Susa was in confusion. Does anybody have a different word in your translation? I didn't look this up to find out. Just anybody have a different word besides confusion? Perplexed. Perplexed. Why would the city have, and for that matter, any the whole nation could have been at some point, why would this be perplexing or confusing? Um, we had kind of a repeat of this in the last century, didn't we? In Germany? Where Jews were singled out. You couldn't be a Jew and be in an important role. And um, to determine, and, and ultimately they were carting them off to concentration camps and doing what they could to wipe them out. And it's sad and sick, but as the war was winding toward its end and they realized that they were going to lose the war, did they put more energy and effort into trying to keep that from happening? Well, yes. But their main focus, number one priority, was solving what they called the Jewish problem, meaning that they exist, before they lost the war. That was more important to them than surviving as a nation. Clearly obsessed with a very evil intent. But they had a problem. If you're going to kill all the Jews, how do you figure out who the Jews are? Have you ever read about that? I mean, they had to go through historical research into, well, maybe you've got a certain amount of Jewish blood in your heritage, so they had to go back and prove this. Accusations were made. It was a mess trying to know at some point. I mean, some people obviously were Jews. It was easy for a lot of them. But there were a lot of people that's like, okay, do I have a Jew in my history? And then the authorities trying to figure it out and work all... Can you imagine the confusion here in Susa? I mean, on that day, if you're going to kill them all, who is in the all? And by the way, this is my neighbor. We, we help each other out. We do business. He's, he's helped me see ways I can do my business better. And there, our kids play together. I mean, I think it's very easy to see why out of the blue, here comes an order to annihilate a whole people group. And not only that, we don't know what was written in the order, but why them? Who's next? And a fair accusation, or at least intuitive um, thought would be, they're after their money. Why is it fair? They were after their money. Well, we have money. Some, not a lot, but we got some. Are we next? You know, what, what's going on here? I mean, this upset the standards, the, the ways that they were used to thinking about living and being a part of this. Multicultural, don't forget, they have conquered many lands and many peoples. They're a multicultural kingdom. And now all of a sudden the people are faced with we're going to pick out one segment, try to isolate them enough we know who they are, and kill them, man, women, and children. 
not every culture has the same kind of reaction that we would have to killing children and so on, but it's still going to be quite a day, isn't it? And so not only, I mean, if they'd have said next Friday, at least you wouldn't have had to agonize over it very long if you were actually going to participate in this. And you probably had another situation that came up because it came up in Germany, didn't it? I'm going to help these Jews get out of here. I'm going to help these Jews avoid this terrible thing. Some of these people were probably thinking, what can I do? How can I help? Um, so you've got all of this going on. And you've got to live through it for a year. And what are we going to do between now and then if I'm not a Jew? For that matter, what are we going to do between now and then if I am a Jew? And so we have this great confusion that these men, through a very simple decree, it's simple in one sense, complicated to figure out how to carry it out maybe, have foisted on their whole country, one out of rage and the other one probably out of greed or a desire to get his bank accounts fixed as a nation. Questions, comments, thoughts? good to look at from a cosmic perspective too like prince of the power of the air the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience um, is actively persecuting the lineage uh, that the messiah would come through and mm -hmm. so we, we look at you know the uh, the genesis chapter what, three or four um, you know you have the, the serpent will you know uh, bite her heel and the, mm -hmm. bite his heel and the, he'll stomp his head or whatever like the the prophecies and so you have satan actively working in political spheres mm -hmm. to try to mitigate the prophecy, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah coming. And I think, too, to a certain extent, we have similar things today. So you have um, the Holocaust, obviously. Um, you have active persecution of Jews in modern day that's designed, once again, to actively um, try to, to stop God's prophecies from, from coming true. It's, it's one of those things, it's an argument from silence, but why is there so much hatred towards Jews um, apart from, you know, a cosmic explanation that, that Satan hates God's prophecies coming true uh, and the Jews are integral to, to God's, God's future? They're still his chosen people even though they've taken some interesting rebellious side directions. And, of course, and Paul also said it, not everyone who is Israel is Israel. And, yes, sir? Yeah, I'm just thinking about the... Uh influence of the Persian culture at that time would have been massive more than what we realized I mentioned Daniel last week so we're back to that he would have been a high Persian official uh, the first couple of kings in Pers the Persian Empire and uh, Jewish people have always been very thrifty, thriving, industrious successful, rich wealthy throughout history mm -hmm. so they obviously would have been in places of influence in the political, cultural, and economic genre uh, of the Persian Empire. Uh, think about the wise men who came 500 years later, were Persian magicians, most likely. Most likely, yep. Who would have been taught by these very Jewish people about becoming Messiah and all the signs that were 
leading to that. So that would show us the depth of influence that the Jewish people had in the Persian Empire. It was massive. So we could see why Susa, the capital, was absolutely thrown in confusion. Yeah, well, it was such a decree, and it was almost unthinkable. You know, and I think that's really the right way of saying it. It was unthinkable for the for the people in the nation. What what happened here? And and clearly, neither Haman nor Ahasuerus um, were even mindful of who was included in this mix. I mean, we're going to, I mean, that's part of the basis of this story is it impacted people that they never expected and turned around and impacted them. And uh, so this is a fun story. It's not fun at places. This is not a fun moment. But one of the things that we can keep in mind, and one of the things that's really been on my mind for many reasons lately, is the sovereignty of God here. I mean, this sounds dire, but in reality, it's all a part of God's grand plan. And difficult things in life often are a part of God's grand plan to take his kingdom and his individual people where he wants them to go. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious to us, and uh, we thank you so much for recording these events. Lord, it is um, astounding to see that there was a moment about a thousand years before this book was written that you declared your war with the Amalekites. Um, it is also astounding to see about 550 years before this book was written the role of Saul and Samuel in dealing with your judgment of the Amalekites and the person, the King Agag. And it's just fascinating to see that you're not done yet, that you can wait centuries, but you always see that your will is carried out. You know, we thank you for this book. Pray, Lord, that as we go through a, a, a portion of this book where the story turns dark and looks ominous, of course, we know the end. We've heard it many times. But, uh, Lord, uh, just keep reminding us that in our dark moments, you're still sovereign God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.